Hello and welcome to Financial Education for the Nation. My name's Warren Shute and today it's all about the spending review. This episode has been sponsored by IDELO, the price comparison website. So there's been a lot in the press recently about the spending review, the Chancellor spending review. But what is it? What, what, what is a spending review? We're all familiar with a budget, but what's a spending review? Our, um, I sort of mentioned it in my office and stuff, and a few people didn't know what it was. So I thought it'd be a great opportunity just to spend a few minutes just to tell you guys or explain to you what the spending review is and how and why it's important. The spending review is carried out by HMR Treasury, so it's the financial department of the government, and it sets out how much taxpayers' money should be sent to each or allocated to each of the different government departments um, to spend on things like NHS, schools, and the police and such like. Okay. Um, in addition to the day-to-day -day spending, okay, they also cover longer-term projects, things like upgrading rail networks, the roads, and such like, as well as that. So it's really the allocation of the budget, okay? So the money coming in, so the remember the government received money coming in from taxpayers. You pay tax on your everything, on your income through income tax and national insurance. When you sell an item, capital gains tax. When you die, inheritance tax. When you buy something, VAT, um, your fuel duty. You know, when you import something, there's so many different taxes that you pay. Um, this money comes in, and then the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, will then allocate it to all the different departments. And then he sets these allocations out in the spending review. Now, the spending review covers about half of the money that the government spends, um, including things like, so list them off here, defence, transport, welfare, education, housing, culture, trade, business, um, and all the money paid out to the devolved administration, such as well, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Um, but it doesn't cover less predictable items or spending items such as student loans and social security benefits payments. Okay, so it's the bulk of it. So I likened it when I was talking to my office about it, I likened it to our bills account. So remember, if you look at the bank account system, we've got our bills account, which is our fixed overheads. We know what we're going to be spending pretty much. I know our mobile phone might vary a little bit or thing, our gas and electric might vary slightly. Um, but it's our fixed overheads. And then we've got our variable spending, which is our WAM. We spend out of a different account. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, um, type in on the search box on warrenshoot.com bank account system. Um, and it'll explain a little bit more on this. It's, it's a method that I recommend people run their bank accounts um, so they have a bit more sort of control over their money. Now, the last spending review was done by George Osborne back in 2015. Now, a lot has happened in that period of time. Um, and, you know, these spending reviews are normally done every one to five years, and it's been five. So it was really almost going to say overdue um, because of all the different changes, but it definitely is due. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, it, it's necessary. And the thing is, with this spending review, he's only done it for a 12-month period. So it means we're going to have another spending review next year to, I guess, in his mind, to cover the after COVID-19 finances, what's going to happen then. Um, but this one is all about focusing on supporting jobs and supporting healthcare. You know, so he's, he's, he has his, uh, his uh, job cut out, definitely. The 
Office of Budget Responsibility, the OBR, are forecasting the government, the economy, sorry, will contract by about 11% this year. Now, that I think that's going to be one of the highest in the developed world. I've got to say, it's pretty high. So, you know, it's the highest fall or the largest fall in output for more than 300 years. Um, so, yeah, that's that's pretty... That's pretty tough. Uh, they then expect the economy to re start to recover once COVID restrictions have been lifted and grown by about 5.5% in 2021, 6.5% in 2022, and then going down to the more realistic twos uh, for the following five years. They reckon unemployment's going to peak in the second quarter of 2021, so next year, about 7.5%. Um, so that's about 2.6 million people. So that's a lot. That is a lot. It's nowhere near as high as they were initially um, forecasting. I can remember seeing some reports hitting around about 15%. Um, so we're nowhere near there, but it's still it's still a sizable sum. And that's one of the things that Rishi Sunak has to be most worried about, because if you think about it logically or the implications of it, high unemployment, lower tax payers, therefore less tax receipts. So it's a vicious cycle. You've got less people paying money into the system to support the system because when they pay in, it goes out to support you. So if you look at unemployment, if you've got lots and lots of people unemployed and no money coming or less money coming in, who's going to pay the unemployed? So it, it's, it's that's why he's so focused on trying to keep unemployment low. That's why he's doing the furlough schemes, job support schemes, everything else. Um, but it's a double-edged sword because he's then got the debt that he's got to look after and manage. Um while there was while it was expected that he would focus on jobs in healthcare, uh, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the Institute of Fiscal Studies um, both confirmed that he needs to focus on supporting health, the economy, and livelihoods. And the, ch the chancellor's recognised that. You know, he's come out and said that's the sort of his main priorities. And hopefully, um, what he's doing is going to allow us to go through. But I am worried that the contraction of the economy is a lot higher. Um, than so many other countries, if I'm honest. Um, and that's really got to do with it. I don't think we've got the virus under control. Um, so let's hope the um, the vaccine is going to bring a, a level of hope and stability to that. Now, why am I worried about the economy under control? It's not necessarily from an investment perspective because we would generally invest globally. Okay, so 52% ish of our portfolios in America, only about 9% in the UK. Um, so it's globally diversified and we've got access to China and the emerging countries like um, India and Pakistan and everything else like that, South Africa. But if the economy's weak, it means there's going to be more people made unemployed. And that's just a vicious cycle. And you don't want any hardship on anyone. So really what you want is a strong economy, so there's more employment. Um, and that's really where it's got to be sort of focusing on. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how it all pans out. They think unemployment's going to peak in quarter two next year. So um, the furlough scheme finishes in March. So I think March 2021 is going to be sort of a telling time of what it's like uh get our sort of heads down get through december january february um for me they're the worst months of the year anyway um not because of christmas but because of the weather um it's all grim and dark but it'll be very interesting to see what it's like how it all sits out in march and april next year um good weather hopefully a bit more optimism and things going on
Um, but our economy remains fragile. I don't foresee him increasing taxes just yet. Taxes are covered in the budget, not in the spending review. So I don't foresee him increasing taxes just yet. But I think it will be something that happens down the line. Um, I think there'll be there'll be almost like stealth taxes going into next year. So taxes that won't really affect the uh, man on the street so openly or op uh, clearly. Um, so income tax, capital gains tax and things like that, um, I don't think will be there. But uh, a good example will be um, uh, reduction of indexation of state benefits or different benefits, probably not increasing tax allowances and things like that. So we won't necessarily notice them. But in the big scheme of things, um, it will allow him to recoup and bring in a little bit more money. And then I think once we get the economy more on a stable footing, bear in mind we have Brexit as well coming up in about 30 or so days, the end of the year. Um, once the economy is on a stable footing, once we're through Brexit and the COVID virus is under control or at least being able to be managed, um, then we'll start to see tax rises. And I think that will be in 2022. Um, the question is whether it will be a Conservative budget, a uh, government, um, or whether it will be a Labour government, um, because, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting. The way the, way the whole thing's been um, transpired in the UK, it does make me wonder who will win. And I'm, I'm neutral. I'm not trying to say that we have to have a Conservative government or a Labour government. I just look at the policies that they are going to offer. Um, and just sort of think myself what would be most beneficial for the UK um, as a whole. Anyway, five things that you may not have known about the spending review. Okay, so one of the things it came out with was total UK borrowing in 2022. So current year will be not that far short of 400 billion. Now what that simply means is they have borrowed 400 billion pounds this year to keep things um, going. Um, that's the highest in British uh, peacetime history. Previous peak was 164 billion back in, um, I forget how that was, but 164 million. So 400 billion, man, that's, that's a lot of money they've borrowed, a lot. And this is why he wants to bring it back under control. Uh, the total debt that the UK has, um, it's uh, done as a percentage of GDP, so that's basically our income, uh, will go up to about 91% uh, next year. And they predict it to rise to almost 98% in 2025 26. So if you look at that, although um, the the um, peak they're saying is unemployment is going to be in March next year. They still foresee them having to borrow more money at quite an alarming rate. So it rises from 2021, 22, 23, 24, 25. Okay, every year pretty much. And it's going up by yeah, pretty much a percent every year, maybe one or two percent every year. So it's going from 91 up to about 98 percent. Now, these are forecasts. But really what it's saying is they're not going to be bringing enough taxes in to cover the expenses. So that's one of two things. Either they're not going to increase taxes as much as some people are worried about. Or they're going to be borrowing a lot of money to keep the economy going. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. 
Um, number three, there's going to be there's going to be a pay f- uh, rise freeze uh, on public sector pay other than doctors and nurses because they've absolutely worked so hard. But I think everyone works so hard. And this is a real contentious point about um, offering pay freezes and who should ha- take this pain and stuff that and the other. Um, so, yeah, definitely difficult decisions to make. They've done a three billion restart program. So this is a program for the pensions, uh, sorry, working pension secretary to deliver um, support to get people back into the workplace for the unemployed. And this goes back to unemployment peak and it's 7.5%. You know, they want to get these people back into work because when they're back into work, they're paying taxes. When they're paying taxes, they're supporting themselves. So, um, yeah, and they put 3 billion of that 400 billion aside for that. I assume it's included. And they've put another 4 billion um, aside for a leveling up leveling up fund. Now, like him or hate him, um, you know, Boris Johnson did come to power on a sticky way. He came to power very in a great time, but as soon as he was in office, he you know, the COVID virus hit. So he's had very little opportunity to deliver his promises of reuniting the UK, um, which I think is very important because you know people who are in the north of the UK can feel isolated because everything seems to go on in London. And um, why that is, I have no idea. It's history, but it seems silly um, when things are less expensive and easier to do up north. Um, so um, they put a four billion leveling up fund in place to help um, disadvantaged areas. And there's not a link there between up north and disadvantaged areas. That was just part of the conversation. But different disadvantaged areas of the UK um, to you know bring them more into um, trading and uh, the trade of the UK. So be interesting how much of an effect that has. That's really important, I think. So in the news uh, this week, a couple of things that I wanted to uh, bring to your attention. So it's Christmas time, okay? My wife is going crazy because I don't have decorations in the studio, um, but she messed my studio up anyway because um, we do a Christmas card for our clients and we personalize it. We don't buy them, we do it ourselves. So she borrowed the studio and we had... um, a member of staff into the studio at any one time because of distancing and stuff and it was all a mess in here and when she put it back together it wasn't how I normally have it so it's taken me ages to get it all straight today but that was a long way of saying it's Christmas time and at Christmas time we get Christmas parties and normally Christmas parties are based um, sort of face to face but I don't imagine I can't imagine many happening this year we've got quite a unique one going on at Lexington Um, but the government uh, HMRC sorry have said yes the £150 allowance that they give for each member of staff so if you're an employer and you employ staff you can spend £150 per person and get it tax deductible um, as your party fund Um, can also be for virtual parties so we're having a virtual party at Lexington and whatever we pay up to 150 pounds can be tax deductible that go for all your employers so if you're an employer out there it still counts you've got this and it's tax deductible expense that was good news they're adapting to the modern times yeah it might be this way for a time to come you never know second bit of news which was really eagerly anticipated um, and closely watched was the spiver report you might think spiver what's spiver report spiver report is the standard in pause index versus active report in this in essence what it is is a report where standard pools which is a u.s fund agency monitor active funds and how they do against their index so remember there's two ways of investing money one is through active management where you 
give money to a fund manager and they buy and sell shares and they try and beat the index. And the other way is to buy a broad index. Um, and you say, okay, we're just going to capture that index return. That's what I normally advocate. So Standard Poor's is a very, very respected and credible um, company that people would look to and say, okay, the findings on that are decent. And these reports will be coming out for a long time now, very long time. But the reason this one was most eagerly weighted was because the argument against index fund management, okay, is that, well, you just track the market down so it doesn't make sense. So it's okay when the market's going up because you're following the market up. But when the market's going down, you're then going to track the market down. And that doesn't make sense. If you were an active manager, you could get out of the market. I don't know where you'd go to. I think the argument is you'd sit in cash, although you're not allowed to do that. Sit in cash. And then you'd go back into the market when it recovers, i.e. the fund manager would know. They haven't got a clue. And this report proved that because it showed that over half of the active managers underperformed their benchmark. So it's like a 50-50. So there's an argument to say, well, actually, we agree active management does well. Sorry, um, index management does well during the market rises, but going down, it doesn't. So we'd rather go active. And it's saying, well, actually, it doesn't when it work, work going on the way down. So on the way down, over half of the active fund managers underperformed the index. Now, that was under half, but then when you took the time period out to a three-year period, 75% of them underperformed the index. 75. That's just crazy. And there are still advisors out there. I'm putting my neck on the line here. I'm sure I'm going to get a bit of grief from people out there, but I've got to do it because I just don't believe in it. You know, Lexington has been a passive stroke indexed fund uh, advising firm for... 15 years so 15 might be longer 15 16 17 years ago we decided we understood that you can't outbeat the market consistently you know we just want to buy the market and there are dimensions of return so areas of return that you can do better so rather than just buy a straightforward tracker fund you can do better by tilting towards um, smaller companies value companies albeit they haven't done so well with recent years but the premium is still there um, and profitable companies so rather than just buying a straightforward tracker you have got dimension so the way we see it is you've got active at the bottom index in the middle and then we refer to it as evidence-based investing is the way that the smart money goes and that's what we do on lexington sorry at lexington my work uh financial planning firm but also at lexo so lexo.co.uk there's um uh, evidence-based portfolios there and they track the market so they keep their fees very low they follow the market but they also wait so they hold slightly more smaller companies and value companies and things like that so they do slightly better um, than the overall market as a whole but um yeah this spiv report was very interesting to to see at this current time it was very well um yeah it's a good report you can google it and find it yourself spiva report so a couple of questions in from listeners and viewers. Uh, my first question is, my spouse is a UK resident, but is not domicile in the UK. Do they have an inheritance tax band? Okay. So an inheritance tax band is basically when you die, the first £325,000 is tax-free on whoever receives it, and the excess is potentially charged at inheritance tax. There's also a residential no-rate band as well. 
um, and UK residents and domicile get that and it's based on your whole worldwide assets. So even if you are not domicile, i.e. your domiciliary is another country, but you are resident, you still receive it. So the difference between res residency and domiciliary are different. Residency is pretty much where you spend and this isn't technically the answer, so please don't pick me up on it, but residency is pretty much where you spend most of your time, okay? There are criteria around it, but where you live, in essence, where you spend most of your time. Um, and that's where people talk about becoming non-resident, so they spend most of the time elsewhere. And that affects principally income tax and capital gains tax. But your domiciliary, where your domicile is, um, it's a combination of where you're born, where you intend to be buried, where your father was born, it's not black and white. It's kind of almost like an argument of saying where you're going to be buried, where you're going to end up. Where were you born? Where do you end up and tend to finish your life? And um, where was your father born? So if you were born in the UK, you tend to be buried in the UK and your father's born in the UK. Where's well, father, not mother? I have no idea. It doesn't make sense. Old fashioned rules. Um, then you're domiciled in the UK. But in this instance, I think the person was from um, uh, Singapore or Philippines, something like that. Um, they live in the UK, but they intend to go back there at a later date and their father was born there. They're not domiciled in the UK, you see. But they still get the nil rate ban for their UK assets, um, whereas a UK resident and UK domicile is on their worldwide assets. It's getting a bit detailed, so we'll miss that, the rest of that off, I think. Second question in was, I'm 80 years old, I'm in good health, and I really want to ensure my house is left to my children on my death how do I do this? Okay, I think we had a question like this before, which was very similar. Okay, but um, the easiest way to do that is by leaving it to your children or your, yeah, in your will. So you write a will and you say, I hereby bequeath my home to my children on my will. Okay, equally, if one of them dies, then down to their children, or if you don't want that to the surviving child, sibling. Um, and that is pretty certain that's going to be covered that's going to be pretty clear okay that's going to work however you can take it a step further if you wish and the only 100% absolute way you can do it is by putting your home into a trust today so you relinquish ownership you do a title transfer so the ownership of the property becomes a trust the trust owns the house and then when you die the trustees would then pay the house out to the beneficiaries and the trustees could be your children and the beneficiaries could be your children so it's absolutely certain. And the nice thing about that, although it will still be in your estate for inheritance tax because there's a um, reserve benefit there, um, it is, <coughs> it's private as well. It's no, there's no record of it. So if you're aware, there's records of wills um, on the web internet. You can just download them and have a look at them. Um, whereas a trust, it won't be. It's a private affair. Okay. Moving on to Smarter Spender. So Smarter Spender is the section of the show which is sponsored by Idealo. Um, and Idealo is the price comparison website that I use and my family uses and we've always used for a long, long time. Um, the reason I use it is because it's pretty complicated to find things on the internet at the best price. Um, and the nice thing about Idealo is it will search the internet for you and come back a heartbeat of what the best price is. So if I'm buying anything of reasonable value don't be wrong if i'm going to buy a tin of baked beans i'll just go and buy a tin of baked beans but if i'm buying something of value so maybe a laptop or a watch or um or whatever i'm trying to think of the last thing i bought um a camera 
okay i would always and this is not exaggeration always go on to idealo check out the price um and if it's more than i want to pay um then i'll probably set some price alerts and this is the real usp i think with idealo that it's set you can set price alerts so they can it can then tell you when your um item hits that price and this is great for kids if they want something who can't quite afford it yet get them set price alerts and do they still want it when it comes through that's another good point but this week dipped in price they've got ps4 games about ps4 uh, games down about 11 percent on last week headphones are down 15 percent and lego is down 16 percent so um with the advent of christmas coming this is good news you know remember a penny saved is a penny earned um idealo said that you know if you're thinking about buying an oven at christmas it's normally a hundred pounds cheaper than other times of the year particularly july which is the most expensive time now i don't know about you but i wouldn't be thinking about buying an oven in december but i guess if your oven is kind of like finished it's had its day and you're thinking about that big turkey you're going to be cooking or your nut roast then perhaps it's something you need to get your wriggle on and get sorted um and but they do think that they reckon uk consumers will be buying bluetooth speakers um around this time of year amazon echo dot ultimate ears mega boom three and the jbl flip essential are some of the most popular um items that are searched for on their site so um yeah it'd be interesting to see how the black friday and cyber monday um have gone and whether you actually bought anything if you bought anything why don't you message me tell me what you bought it'd be quite interesting to see whether you needed it or just wanted it um because like you know spending money isn't bad spending money is okay as long as you've just got your allocation of your money and you're putting things aside for your future and paying down your debt you know spending money is all about living we don't know how many more tomorrows we've got so it's nice sometimes to get a feel-good feeling from uh, buying something you want as well as something you need so um yeah sometimes they differ from some financial planners in that way that some people are very sort of live on a shoestring and save as much money as you can and i'm not so much of a believer of that so anyway that's all for this week i hope you've enjoyed our show not probably as festive as my wife would have liked it but all the same a uh, good show you know all about the spending review now and if you have any questions on it please feel free to message me at warren at warrenshoot.com or drop me a social media message or on the notes below you take care and until next time be safe